0: at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We want to welcome you in tonight to service. Welcome again tonight to all those that are online. Let us turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles 12, and I can't guarantee you that we're going to find a happy story here. But we'll find a historical account of some things that happened in the nation of Israel, as we have been doing with the books of the Kings and Chronicles, 2 Chronicles now, chapter 12. Now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. Big mistake, my friends. Take those lessons from the Old Testament seriously. When somebody forsakes the Lord, uh, it never ends well. Verse 2, And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and people without number who came with him out of Egypt, the Lubim and the Sukim and the Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came to Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak and said to them, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me and therefore I also have left you in the hand of Shishak. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and they said, the Lord is righteous. All right, good progress, good step there. I think we read this morning, you might recall, over in um, Ezekiel when uh, it said in 39.23, the Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. That's the kind of thing that happens when you forsake God. He gives you over to yourself and you get the consequences. Now, verse 7 says, Now, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves. Therefore, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they will be his servants, that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdom of the nations. Now, how about that? You want to try out... Going your own way and see how that service is? Okay, fine. You give it a a shot. You give it a try and see how you like it. sometimes, if you go to the book of Malachi, for example, the priests took the, the sacrificial system and all the work that they had to do as some kind of thing to sniff at. They just couldn't take it. They felt upset about it. They were not happy with the provision God made for them. So God made another provision for them. And uh, if you read in Malachi chapter 2, oh, around 1 through 12, you'll see what that provision was, a very bad situation for them. Verse 9, So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. He also carried away the gold shields which Solomon had made Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them into the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guard would go and bring them out, Then they would take them back into the guard room. When he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to destroy him completely, and things also went well in Judah. Thus King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned, Now, Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonitess, and he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. That's exactly the opposite of Ezra. Remember, he had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes in Israel. Ezra 7, I think that is. You can go look that up. The acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah the prophet and of Iddo the seer concerning genealogies? And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Then Abijah his son reigned in his place. Okay. Well, like I said, that was a sad testimony there of things going on in the nation. I've got a whole bunch of paperwork up here, so bear with me as I uh, sort through it a little bit. I have some uh, Bible Q&A tonight, and I'll start with one that I received by email um, and it was a number of days back and didn't have a chance to write any response. Just briefly, uh, today I did. Uh, I do not know who this person is, but they asked this question. The subject is slavery in the Bible. Uh, Good day, sir slash madam, he says very formally. I would like to know if slavery was ordained by God and thereby existed in the Old and New Testament to reflect God's order like marriage, or was slavery man-made and thus more of a reflection of culture and man-made traditions? Which is it? I don't know the tone of the question, if it's, uh, if it's friendly or not. I can't really tell, but uh, if I were to pose that question to you, what would you say? What would you say? Well, uh, let me start by just kind of go through the question in order. I would like to know if slavery was ordained by God. Now, if something occurs, is it ordained by God? <laughs> yeah. Whatsoever comes to pass has been ordained, either actively we could say, or permissively by God. Okay. So, if it if it's out of God's ordination, it doesn't occur. So, in that sense then we'd have to say yes. But exactly in what way would we say that? And so uh, let's go to the next part here. Uh, And thereby, on on the basis of God's ordination, thereby it existed in the Old and New Testament. Well, it did. But then it says to reflect God's order like marriage. Now, I look at this and I say, well, he's gone off the rails here because marriage is an entirely different thing than slavery. It does, marriage does uh, exhibit order like uh, in the Godhead with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, or in society we have the authority and headship relationships and submission relationships like we're told to submit to the governing authorities, Um, husbands and wives, loving leadership by husbands, loving submission in the wives, and so on. So that's clearly ordained by God. It's taught by God. It was actually from chapter 1 of Genesis uh, which relates to your question, uh, God ordained in directly, actively designed marriage for the fruitfulness of the race, for the enjoyment of husband and wife, and so on for the stability of society. And so that 's a totally different ball game than slavery. Let me make a likeness regarding marriage to the slavery, and that is divorce. Okay, so I would say that instead of marriage being ordained in the same way as slavery, I would say divorce is more like slavery. Does that make sense? In other words, it's not that God said, you know, you do this and this is what I want you to do and divorce your spouses and all of that. No, it was as Jesus said to the uh, Pharisees, for the hardness of your heart, God gave you this permission, right? So... It's like it's not an active ordination of God. It's a regulation upon sin in order to keep things in an orderly fashion in society. As, as we know, we have laws regarding uh, marriage and divorce today for the same reason, so that things don't go you know, completely, uh, what's the word, anarchist or whatever, crazy. Okay. So we have regulations about how things are done. And so that doesn't mean just because you regulate it doesn't mean that you like it or permit it uh, in a way like, you know, it's a great thing. So same thing with slavery. Um, There's a a lot of helpful resources on this. One of the ministries that I run into occasionally is called gotquestions.org, and they have an answer to this question, a few paragraphs that's helpful. You might look that up. But let me just answer the way I wrote to him. Slavery was not created by God to reflect God's order. God did not institute it. In other words, it wasn't an institution by God. You don't see God saying, you know, you shall have slavery. Like he says, you shall not lie or you shall whatever. What's that? Yes, yeah. So, um, slavery was therefore man-made. It came about as a result of the sin of man. However, everything that comes to pass is ordained or permitted by God. So, we'd have to say that that is the way God ordained... Things to be. Um, now let me mention uh, that we've got here I'm just uh, I'll show you, although you can't see this, very small print, 14 pages of notes that I wrote on this subject back in 2016. And I've been privileged to preach this in three different places here and Troy and also uh, at Salem Bible Church in their Bible conference. So I've gone over that material quite a number of times. And one thing that I highlight in there is that when you say the Bible and slavery, immediately you're thrown off because you're thinking of the last 200 years, 300 years of American history, 400 years of American history. That's like that's new news. We've got to go back farther to get to what the Bible uh, envisions as the, the reality of slavery back in the Old Testament times and it had nothing really to do with race like what we think about today. Um, Exodus 21 is one of the most helpful passages on this uh, issue of slavery because people don't understand this. They think, well, look, the Bible says uh, servants be obedient to your masters and Many times in the New Testament, it talks about that. So, wow, it must, it must uh, you know, God must approve of slavery. Well, He regulates it. He regulates our conduct in it. And He doesn't uh, go about, in the first place, concerning Himself with getting rid of a social ill, which I believe slavery is a social ill. And the way we think of slavery, it certainly is but there are other arrangements in the Old Testament that I don't think are social ills. They would be actually socially helpful. But here's one that is very ill. Exodus 21:16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Okay, This is the sin in the Old Testament and then King James Version in the New Testament is called the sin of man-stealing. Okay, so stealing a person, kidnapping them to enslave them, is a death penalty offense. Does that give you any indication of what God thinks of that kind of slavery? Pretty clear, isn't it? God hates that kind of slavery, like He hates other kinds of immorality, murder, and that sort of thing. God is very serious about this matter. So let's be sure that we know that straight up. The kind of slavery that we're talking about in our you know, last 400 years of history, which comes to mind, was completely forbidden by God, uh, completely. There's just no question about it. Buying and selling slaves, chattel slavery, stealing them from their homeland to bring them here to enslave them, utter wickedness, utter wickedness. And so hopefully that answers the question it was certainly man-made, and some forms of it were regulated by God. Let me just mention the, the kind of main issue. I think I alluded to this earlier today, and that is the, uh, the issue in the Scriptures of bond servitude or debt servanthood or debt slavery. We can call it that. Uh, people would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery in order to pay debts. They would involuntarily be sold into slavery to pay Debts And this kind of slavery was was an economic slavery. It was not a uh, chattel, property, race-based kind of slavery. In the New Testament, we have evidence in the Roman era of people voluntarily putting themselves into an enslaved position in order to elevate their situation. They would have their needs met. Their master would take care of them, would be responsible for them. You had doctors and lawyers and other people of position like that actually being in the slave class as they served their masters in those capacities. So it's entirely different than what we're used to. You know, We have to recognize we live in a westernized, individualistic culture that has you know been so influenced by Christianity over the years that we've lost some of that cultural context. For them, this kind of slavery was just normal. You know, I mean, think about it this way. After you get out of high school, you've graduated, what are you going to do now? You know, you say to your friend, well, I think I'm going to sell myself into this man's household because he has a good offer, and then I can get some education and I can become a lawyer. You know, I go into the military. I'll do service in the military and uh, serve them, or I'll I'll uh, I'm gonna strike out on my own and start my own little venture and uh, see if I can sell my service to uh, other people in more of a free kind of way if I can make it. So there were there were just options like that that we don't even think of. You know we're not accustomed to, for example, um, you know saying uh, after high school, well uh, I'll uh, I'll you know go to university, but because the government's gonna pay for that, then I owe them six years of service back when I'm done. That's often the case in other countries around the world. But that's in a a sense a kind of bond servanthood, isn't it? Yeah, you said, okay, I'll get the education and they say, we'll pay for that, but then you've gotta come and work for us for six years or four years or eight years or however long. Well, it seems like a fair arrangement, especially if you don't like student debt, which is kind of an issue these days, isn't it? Everybody wants to talk about student debt and student debt forgiveness. Well, there's other ways to take care of it than just uh, you know, forgiving the debt or pretending it didn't exist. So anyway, um, sometimes people would be sold into uh, a kind of uh, debt service relationship with someone if they owed something, say they stole, and they had to repay. Well, that's they would have to do that. So... Uh, and they would work until they they paid it back. now there were regulations, of course, uh, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, when would a when would a, a bond servant be released every seven years right so this was uh, this prevented somebody from being in service forever, and it so put a limit on the value of what they could earn or pay you know if, if a guy owed fifty years' worth of debt it wasn 't going to work to uh, put them into bond service for six and a half years, if that's how long it was until the next year of release. So it did put a little bit of a cap on what somebody might be willing to lend to such a person because they say, well, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get $50,000 back or 50 years worth back rather, if they can only work for me for seven years. So it would put a credit limit on the people. It's an interesting economic system that we're not accustomed to, but they were, and they were, you know, in some ways okay with it. Now, we don't have time to get into the whole thing about slaves that were captured during war. Uh, There is some distressing information there, in my mind, for the people of Israel following the same kinds of practices that were followed in the ancient Near East, but God did regulate that too, and although... Was man-made and reflected the culture in which they lived. It was not something that he instituted in some kind of happy way. I mean, then you get into the question: Well, did God ordain war? Oh well, I I think most of us would agree God did not institute war. In fact, war is all due to hatred and difficulties between humans, not love. And so, uh, but He does permit it and does use it for His purposes in the world. So. That's a question about slavery tonight. I'm going to leave that there unless there's a very uh, pressing follow-up that you'd like to say. Ben. Okay, Ben is pointing out that uh, one of the things that regulated the conduct of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was this reminder that you were slaves in Egypt and so you're not to treat your slaves with harshness uh, you're to give them the rest, same rest that you rest on the Sabbath day, they rest as well. So it was an entirely different uh, kind of mindset that they had relative to their slaves than what they experienced as they were slaves. And that would tend to, um, what's the word? I'm looking for a word. It would tend to attenuate their harshness to slaves because they were told by God, don't be doing that like you, it was done to you because you know how that was. So, very good. Uh, and shows the difference between slavery in the world purely and then slavery as it was practiced in the nation of, of Israel. Of course, the gospel and the context of it in, in world history set the stage for uh, chattel slavery to be de- done away with. Uh, without Christianity, there would, be, there would still be slavery today like there was then back in the last three or 400 years. But yet, remember, there still is slavery today. Millions of people are enslaved, and not just because of their race, um, but because of human trafficking and all of that nasty stuff that we shan't even mention here in this uh, public hearing. Uh, It's terrible, and government officials, I call upon them, God calls upon them to do everything that they can to reduce that to the lowest level possible not to permit it to continue that is abominable in the sight of god for the allowance of those things and the and the permission of the of the uh, environment in which it can thrive that is wicked and we should do everything we can uh, against it so i was at the uh, fort lauderdale airport uh, for more hours than I anticipated on Thursday night, and uh, one of the announcements that kept playing every whatever half an hour or something was about human trafficking and how they're trying to make efforts to reduce that, even in their community in Fort Lauderdale and Broward County in Florida, and so I appreciate that, and they, you know, said if you see something, say something, Uh, call the authorities, try to get help uh, needed, and I encourage us as well to Always be on the lookout for people that may be in some level of distress because it's intolerable to us as Christians to see people treated like that. All right, enough on the slavery issue. Second question tonight I received, and it was a question which I've put under the heading, a question about gender as a spectrum. Gender as a spectrum. Genesis 127, here's the question. clearly states that God created male and female, we read this to be two separate entities, male and female, okay? Um, not to insult your intelligence, but you'll see why in just a moment. I, I, he says, the questioner, I've come across people in the transgender community twisting this verse to be a spectrum, such as God created male to female, the whole lineup, if you will as if there was a lineup, to encompass everything between male and female. This group also cites Revelation, where God says, I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, as proof that the word and is meant to be a spectrum. I am the alpha all the way to the omega never heard it interpreted really that way, but the idea, certainly, of that verse is if he's the beginning and the end, then you think, well, he's everything, you know, he's everything in between, but exactly what does that mean? The questioner continues um, about Revelation 1.8, the full verse reads, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. The full verse shows the spectrum, breaking down each portion of the spectrum along the way. So the question is this. In, in the Hebrew language, is the conjunction word we use for and specifically different from the word for to? Am I right with my thoughts in the Revelation portion and other thoughts that you might add? So I have a few thoughts on this. It's clearly the case that those who take the spectrum view of the word and are stretching that simple word, and to make it mean what they want it to mean, to fit their understanding, they're twisting the scriptures to their own destruction, okay? I'm trying to be as clear, not mean, but as clear as possible to warn those of you listening, if that's your approach, you are clearly reading the text incorrectly. Even if the word and can sometimes be used to refer to a spectrum between two endpoints. It almost always does not mean that. Even if you can find an example where it does mean that spectrum idea, it does not necessarily mean that in Genesis one twenty-seven. nor does it always mean that. Does it mean the spectrum or the word to in this statement? God created the heavens to the earth no, it means God created the heavens and the earth, two things that he created. Does it mean to in, and the earth was without form and void and darkness and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters? Does it mean to the earth was without form, to void, to darkness, to the Spirit of God was hovering? Obviously not. There's not a spectrum there. Context makes clear in Revelation eight that The Word is speaking about the eternality of God. How do we know that? Well, because the verse says He he was and He is and He is to come. Okay, So He exists at all times from the beginning to the end, and in fact, before and after the beginning and the end, if you will. The Alpha and Omega speaks of the start and finish or beginning and ending, but it does not mean that God is everything in between the beginning and the ending. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that God, say, created, that is not God, that's not included in the Alpha and the Omega, the spectrum of beginning to ending and everything in between, as if he is all of creation in some kind of pantheistic way, although I could see somebody who takes the spectrum view to say, oh, yeah, that's right, everything's a God, we're all God. God is distinct from creation. In any case, the context makes clear, I think, the meaning that we're talking about is timeliness, if you will, not timeliness, his eternality, his, his uh, being outside of time, but his likeness to time or relation rather to time. Similarly, the context in Genesis makes clear that God created two humans that could sexually reproduce. Just like the animals, there are going on to the ark, two of every kind. Now there were sometimes there were more than one pair, one two. Uh, when he had the seven uh, pairs, but uh, certainly the clearly is the case that we're talking about a pair. Obviously, the purpose of the two coming to the ark is to save that kind, or grossly uh, speaking, the species. It's not really a species, but you understand what I mean. That Saving that kind from destruction so that it can continue to live after the flood, after the animals are let off the ark. Um, I'm sure that I don't have to give details to the birds and the bees here for you to understand what I'm talking about, do I? Or, instead of birds and bees, is that birds to bees? (laughs) And everything in between. Just a little humor there to lighten up the situation. The word and does not mean to. There is a distinct Hebrew preposition for to, which is easily distinguishable from the the conjunction for the word and. Okay, now if you could read Hebrew, I could show you, but I'll say it. The preposition for two is the preposition le. It's an L sound. Okay, the conjunction for and is "ve" or vav or u. It depends on how it's how the vowels are pointed. But anybody who reads Hebrew understands that this is. Clearly distinguishable, the word and and the word to. They don't mean what the other one means. They're two different words. In the broad view of things, there is no contemplation of a gender spectrum in Scripture. God made two with specific names, Adam and Eve. In fact, he started out making one. One, Adam. And then he took from Adam a portion of him, and made for Adam a wife. He took uh, his rib. I was just delighted to uh, hear a little uh, story about Hudson Shedd, who was the general director of the Gospel Mission of South America, and I met him a number of years ago. He's since gone to be with the Lord, but sometimes he would tell the men that he knew from the mission, he would say, give my greetings, to your rib to speak about greetings to your wife. And uh, it was his hat tip to uh, Genesis and the creation account. Um, throughout the Bible, this idea of two holds true. Any confusion between the sexes, even in attire, is prohibited. And so there are clearly two, and... Uh, in any way in which somebody wants to stretch that to make it a spectrum, all they're doing is reflecting the human desire to break out of the mold that God has made for the human race. In other words, it's it's a rebellion. That statement, that spectrum statement, is a manifestation of rebellion against the Creator. God created men and women. Actually, he created a man and a woman who were able to reproduce to produce more young men and young women who were able to do that in turn all the way down to us today. And there is no other way that the reproduction of the race can occur. I've often thought about that. And people who believe this, do they also believe in evolution? Because if they do, and they exercise themselves in accordance with their beliefs, they would not have children. Yes? In nature, in the case of nature, they would not be able to have children and that would die out entirely from the genetic pool. The fact that it does not die out from the genetic pool shows us that it's a sin problem, not a spectrum as they're claiming for it to be. So uh, the spectrum is the figment of the imagination of humankind. It is not the creation of God. So let's... It's actually interesting. The first question on slavery: Did God create slavery? And the second question: Did God create a spectrum? And we have to be, you know, clear-minded, clear-eyed to see that God uh, permitted slavery, and He, well, He's allowing people to go down this path of of uh, really nonsense in terms of gender spectrum, but he, there's it's not even close to Him or instituting that or creating that at all. So. Okay, third question I received last week in our Sunday school class, and the question had to do with the balance thinking through the issue of college education for our children, and especially for our girls. That was the questioner's question last week. So what is the balance today for a girl with education and marriage? Say a husband comes along later in her life. Later, I'll say after 18, but say, before 36, all right. You know, a young woman maybe has dreams to be married and have children, Um, but, you know, maybe she's not ready, she's not mature enough. Uh, The, you know, the man of her dreams hasn't come along, so to speak, you know, until later. What should she do in the meanwhile? How can she use her time? What if she has skills coordinate with higher education? Should she get a higher education? How much? So I wrote some thoughts to help us think through this question, and hopefully it will be helpful to those with uh, young people in their home. Um, as I mentioned in our previous session, some of that has to it depends on the wants, the desires of the young lady. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So if you're walking with the Lord and you desire to sharpen your mind, uh, and get become educated and be able to do some skilled thing with that, then there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Uh, is she suited to the challenges of the mind placed on it by the academic discipline? Does she just want to be a homemaker? Uh, today, if she just desires to be a homemaker, well, she's looked down upon by society. And I think that's abominable too. Terrible. She should be encouraged in that. I mean, what higher calling is there than to care for a home and to raise children? That's a task and a half. It's a good task. It's a God-honoring task. We're not going to look down on that. All Christian women are instructed to be keepers of the home or homemakers in any case, whether they work inside, outside the home, or both, or whatever. We all must make the best stewardship of the gifts that we have, and so we should probably elaborate on this a little bit further. Um, a woman who may have you know, desires in a certain direction uh, academically, let's think about that. The, the question is not at all different, that different if you substitute the word boy for the word girl. Now, this doesn't undo what I said earlier. Remember I said, are the instructions for the genders gender-specific in the Bible? Well, yes, there are. Young men, older men, young women, older women, very specific instructions, So the two genders are not interchangeable. Rather, there are important factors, more important factors, that must be considered that apply to both young men and young women. One of these thoughts or lines of thought is this. Going to college should not be seen as a necessity. Look, if the world is telling you you have to do it, you probably better stop and think, wait a minute. The world is telling me to do it? Maybe I should... second guess that thought just for a minute. It might be fine. It might be good. It might be necessary in your case or whatever. But if the world is telling you to do it, be suspicious to start with. Uh, Going to college should not be seen as a necessity, not for being able to navigate life in general, nor for the spiritual development of the child. You don't have to have college to live. You don't have to have college to be a good Christian. As for life in general, there's no shortage of ways to be successful without a college degree. Now, to me, it may seem, and maybe you agree, that, that what I just said seems more likely for a young man than for a young woman because decently paying non-highly educated jobs may be more physical and dangerous in nature, and so a man might be more suited to those. You know, by the way, that men always take, almost always take the most dangerous jobs, and many more men, by I think a couple of orders of magnitude, die on the job than women do. That's why sometimes they get paid more money, hazard pay, okay? Um, But some of those jobs may be physical or dangerous in in nature suited better to a man. But, and so you might think, well, a woman, a young woman, if she wants to get a higher paying job, probably needs to have college because she doesn't want to go dig ditches or be a fireman or a police officer or a, a window washer on skyscrapers. That's just crazy. But anyway, uh, you know, it's dangerous work. As for spiritual development, spiritual development should be happening in the home and in the church. If it's not, sometimes a college is used to supplement it. Bible college now, of course, not secular college. But really, the home and the church situation should be fixed if you have to send a young person to Bible college to get them educated in the Bible. Why aren't they getting educated at home and why aren't they getting educated in the church? So fix the problems there. Remember, college is not necessary to godliness. It's certainly not. Another thought about the word prudence. Is it prudent to go to a particular school if it costs you $30,000 a year or more when there are other options? Is it prudent to go to a faraway school and pay for room and board when the young person could stay at home? Is it prudent to go to a place where a church is not known or there is none rather than to stay near or at home and continue to go to a good home church that is well known? It's amazing to me that people will strike out on this journey to college not having any clue about what churches are there where they're going to. They go do college visits. Have they done church visits? Hmm? Why not? Which is more important, college or church? Church, without any question, is more important. Far better for you to be a poor, good saint than a well-educated sinner. (laughs) Thank you. You know, than a well-educated non-church attender, well educated non church attender will say. Uh, it's far better to have a young person in a good church. Well, listen to this. This this is a conclusion I came up with a long time ago. It's far better to have a young person in a good church and a secular school than in a bad church, no matter whether or not they go to a harmful or harmless school. Did you get that? Now, that reflects my experience, yes, but I think it's true biblically. Far better for you to go to a good church and be grounded there, even if you're going out into the lion's den for school, than to be going to a milk toast school or the lion's den for a school and not having a good church to, to support you, to strengthen you. Think of the difference every week coming and being held accountable. What did you think last week? What did you do last week? What, you know, what is your life about? Than not having that for months on end. You know what that does to a soul when you have no accountability, no Bible teaching, just fluff, you know, stuff all the time, inspirational talks, your soul dries up and you turn into a, you know, a, a person in the doldrums at best, if not just outright don't care about the things of God. Church is required, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. I don't find college in the Bible. Still haven't found it. <laughs> Just not there. Um, maybe some implications uh, for education generally, but certainly not Western-style post-Enlightenment college degree. Another word besides prudence, what about faith? faith? If you cannot do something in faith, it is sin. Romans 14.23 tells us that. If you can't do it in faith, then you should not do so. If you think that going to a progressive secular school is dangerous because of the indoctrination, then you should not go. The mind and its formation is that important for our young people. If it's not a faith, it is sin. If you can go there in faith saying, look, I'm solid, I'm in the word, I'm in a good church, I can speak to my parents and get advice from them, I'm not going into a a field of of utter insanity. Uh, I'll just tell you, like... um, the English courses today are indoctrination. the history courses are indoctrination, but if you're going to computer science, engineering, math, physics, mechanical engineering, you've got to learn you know fluid dynamics and chemistry and physics and all that that's fine. I take that to be a much less dangerous kind of situation than you know learning about the sixteen nineteen project and wokeness all the time, or feminine studies, which are not. Proper feminine studies in terms of scriptural truth. All right, I know I'm getting myself in all kinds of trouble here, but I forge ahead anyway. Yeah, I'm doing good, yeah, I'm doing good right? Thanks. <laughs> Watch the tomatoes flying, <laughs> rotten eggs. Uh, for a young woman, particularly, but also for a young man, loosely hold on to that education that you decide to get. Uh, personal testimony. If I had held on like a bulldog to the education that I got, I would not be here. I gave that up. Now, it turns out God kind of gave it back to me in a sense because I'm able to use it for his glory. But I didn't go and say I want to make a lot of money and I have to do the research lab work and I'm going to be you know, some high-powered guru in computer engineering. No, I put that aside and I said there's something more important to be done. But it's the same kind of thing. And God has, I'll just testify, God has honored that. I remember my grandmother saying, not that phrase that you can't outgive God, but she said, we always gave God from our substance, from our income. And guess what God did for us? He kept us. Now, they were never obscenely rich. They were never rich. They were never upper middle class. But you know what? God carried them all the way through their lives from the depression all the way forward into the 70s and 80s and 90s and early 2000s when she finally went to be with the Lord. And uh, that's fine for me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. And just let me live and pay my bills and carry on. Um, and yet God still gives richly us things to enjoy, and we thank him for that very much. Um, Loosely hold on to that education. So, a young woman goes to get educated. She becomes a nurse. She becomes a teacher. Well, what happens when you know uh, little baby starts to come along after she's married? Well, she's going to make that decision. Am I going to go to work? Am I going to take my six weeks of maternity and then put the baby in the you know in the uh, daycare, or am I going to raise this little child? Six weeks? You haven't even gotten started by six weeks. You haven't even been able to sleep for six weeks. (laughs) You moms know how it is, at least for many of these little babies. Not always the most cooperative, are they? Uh, So loosely hold that education. God may have you use that education to raise up your child and to train them and to teach them and to homeschool them and all of that. So that education is not going to ever go to waste. You may use that education sometime in some other way. Think of a nurse being able to go on a missions trip and help in, uh, you know Pastor uh, Jack Mitchell and his wife and <clears throat> help with the work there. There's all kinds of things that can be done. Uh, for a woman, it seems a bit more likely that she would have to loosely hold that education, in, in other words, called to serve the higher priority of serving her husband and raising children, and maybe having a long gap of time between when she could use that education. You know, you start having kids and a few years of childbearing, and then you have a few years of child rearing, and before you know it, 18 or 20 years has passed, and things are a little different than when you first began having your children. But a man also may be called to leave his field of education and enter into another or into ministry. Remember, God's calling first, not the world's calling first. Um, maybe this falls under the prudence heading as well, but does your young person need the discipline of further education so that they can better reason, better read, better think, and better write? Yes, uh, sometimes that is very important, just simply training the mind to be disciplined, helping your young person to be able to sit down and do their work to complete a course of study to achieve something that they might not know they think they can do uh, but or they don't know that they need to do it i mean you know your child and the situation and the world you put all that stuff together i, I kind of liken it to for our boys when we got them the first two anyways braces they, you know at least one of them didn't like it very much but the outcome has been very good and you might not like education very much but you'll find out that the outcome could be very good if you make use of it properly and wisely. And so, as parents, we know because we have the longer view, you know, maybe 25 or 30 years longer than what our children have, because we're that much older when they're born, that we can see that there's some things that are necessary that might not seem to be so interesting or helpful at the time when we have to do them. Let me also add this then. Does a Bible college education provide what is needed for a young person who is not called into ministry? Sometimes I've seen people just want to always send the kids to Bible college. Well, does it prepare the person for what is necessary for their lives going forward? In many cases, I frankly have to say I doubt it. Uh, If a Bible school does not offer a good program in teaching or nursing or engineering, but a secular school does, and that's what the young person wants to do, then they would choose the secular school preferably over the Bible college. Uh, There's nothing magic about a Bible college. Again, like I say, we should be receiving our spiritual instruction in our home and our church, not farming it out to a Bible college because we're too lazy to do it here in the assembly or in the home. Now, Uh, despite what I've just said, I believe it'd be perfectly acceptable to ask a young person to take a year in Bible college after high school to teach them spiritual life lessons and more intense Bible coursework than they would get otherwise. I don't see a problem with that, but just put it in its right place. Don't say, you know, look, if he's going to go into computer engineering and we're right next to a flagship school in that subject, that we're going to send him away to 600 miles to some Bible college that has a not-so-great program in that field or well-known program. You have to make those decisions based on wisdom. Between uh, the the years of 18, let's suppose, and say 25, that's a significant chunk of time. By the way, what's magic about 18? Nothing. Nothing's magic about 18. We're we're quite delayed. I mean, in, in ancient times, a young woman might be married by 16 or 17 or 18 and think nothing of it. 19? or earlier, and it's just how it is. But as with all of life, a young woman should make the most of those years, say between 18 and marriage at 25, for the glory of God. She can serve God in the local church in many ways during that time. She could be more devoted and undistracted. First Corinthians seven thirty-four and 35 talk about that. She can further the development of her abilities to understand scripture. She can develop in her sanctification, learn things that could be useful to educate her future children, gain skills for a job outside or inside the home, work a job, make disciples of other young women. There are a myriad of things that a young woman can do while she waits for Mr. Wright to come along. And I would encourage anyone to who has children in this state uh, or young people to Make a good study, especially young women of Proverbs 31. It actually doesn't hurt the young men either. What kind of wife are you going to be? Or men, what kind of wife are you looking for? It's a key portion for a young woman to consider in depth. Is she skilled like the woman in Proverbs 31? Is she caring? Remember, she cares for the poor. She helps her family to be well-clothed, well-fed. Is she diligent or is she idle like... Uh, The woman in Proverbs 31 is not idle. Her hands are not idle. She's diligent. Um, Is the young woman prudent and trustworthy like the woman in Proverbs 31? The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. Or is she one who cannot be relied upon? Parents must teach these things to their young people so that they will be the kind of woman or man that God wants them to be. She could take up work in her home, if she stays with her parents to practice what will be needed in her own home. Um, you know, certainly, a young woman should be able to do those things that would be uh, responsible domestic things to be doing as she starts her own home. Uh, but uh, Proverbs thirty-one does not prohibit the working of someone outside of the home, a woman outside of the home. But she, this woman, was out buying and selling and property and all kinds of things. I mean, very wise and uh, and, and prudent in her. Activity. Uh, Let me mention uh, a couple other principles. I was thinking about this on my flight down to uh, the business meetings this week, and uh, just kind of mulling it over. And I thought, you know, there is something that some people bring up sometimes, which are which is called the normative principle or the regulative principle. The normative principle teaches that whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship as long as it's agreeable to the peace and unity of the church. So there has to be an agreement of the general practice of the church and no prohibition in Scripture for whatever is done in worship. Um, So these are often talked about in the context of worship in the church, the normative principle. If it's not prohibited, then it's okay. That piano over there is not expressly spoken of in the Scriptures, although you could say, well, it's a stringed instrument, and stringed instruments are, but... Uh, it's not, spe- or what this organ here is another one. Is that prohibited in worship? Well, scripture doesn't mention it. So the normative principle would permit us to per, to use those instruments in worship. It's often contrasted with the regulative principle of worship, which teaches that only those practices or elements which are specifically commanded or modeled in scripture are to be permitted in worship services. So, um, goodbye piano and organ, you know, hello uh, lyre with seven strings or something like that that you see in the Psalms. That's, we obviously don't take Scripture that way, um, but obviously we do if the Scripture teaches that worldliness is displeasing to God, we want to exclude worldliness from our worship service. So these principles are stated in terms of church worship but the definitions are helpful to ponder for a moment in terms of education. College and even primary and secondary education do not appear in the Scriptures. So if you took the regulative principle on the topic of education, you would not participate in higher or lower education, right? I said college is not mentioned in the Bible. Well, it's not in the Bible, and it's not for me. You know, and you consign yourself to kind of living what we would consider a backwards life, like maybe... Uh, don't take this the wrong way if we have any Amish friends listening, but you know, where you say you can't do that, you just have to live an agrarian lifestyle and, and uh, you know simple dress, no electricity and stuff like that, because well, it's not mentioned in the Bible, so you can't have it. Well, that's not, we, we, I think we can understand clearly that's not a requirement for Christians. And most Christians understand the value of some education so that our people, our young people, can do what? Primarily, read and write. Read and write. For a pastor, it's essential. Reading and writing, too, help us to be able to do what? Think. You know, uh, there's a book, uh, something like uh, Why Johnny Can't Preach, Because He Can't Read. Now, it doesn't mean that he's illiterate. It just means he doesn't have very high skills in reading. Um, and writing, for example. You know, when you write, 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 it helps clarify your thinking and sharpen it so that over the years you become um, better able to express yourself, and I've seen that in my own writing over 20-plus years in ministry that the notes that I'm producing now are better generally than the notes that I produced back then, not to say they were useless back then at all, Um, But we understand the value of education so our young people can read and write and to understand the Scripture. If God has given you a mind, then you should make use of that mind to sharpen it and not leave it in ignorance or in foolishness. Um, You know, many of our young people, here we have several in our church that are top-notch, sharp minds. And to please God... I think it's essential that you make use of that sharp mind to do something for God, to live and be a good citizen. Uh, The Spirit of God has not stricken us in conscience that education is evil in itself. What is evil is evil education. Evil education is evil. Good education is good. Um, It has led to many improvements education has in life, such as the reduction of human suffering, Increases in prosperity, the reduction of famine, increases in population and productivity, and so forth—all these things are things that we can applaud. But when you decrease education and you reduce human, uh, or you increase human suffering, you decrease prosperity, you increase famine, you decrease the population. Uh, you know, like one of the highly educated kind of things today is population reduction. Well, that's just dumb. Okay, That's not smart at all, and certainly not honoring to God who made us to be able to reproduce and, and uh, prosper as a race. So those are some answers to the question about our uh, young people and education, especially young women, and hopefully that's helpful to the, you. But uh, we have to stop now because our time is over already, so let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity we have had to Think about the, the word and the question of education and, uh, and the home life, question of, of uh, slavery, and the question of the spectrum that came up about gender. And uh, thank you for giving us a clear word and clear uh, revelation. It's uh, encouraging that you've given this to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, yeah, that question, by the way, about gender spectrum, it's almost like God anticipated this. If you look at some of the language in Genesis, it gives the creation account of man twice, chapter 1, chapter 2. It says God created uh, humans, mankind. Male and female, He created them. And, it, and then it gives the Adam and the Eve account. It's like clear. He's trying to make it exceedingly obvious to us. Yep. Yeah. That's right. And, of course, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they had wives, and they brought them uh, to be able to propagate the human race as well, save them alive in the ark. Amen. Well, good night, everybody. We have had a good day. Trust you have. And uh, we'll uh, let John get the live stream turned off there. Good night to those of you that are online. Thank you for coming today. Amen.